So, so here's the thing. About two and a half months ago, I was here at night of worship, and Amy uh, got up and sang that song, that song, 139. And I'm just sitting there listening to the words, reading them on the screen, and I'm like, God just said to me, not like audibly, but just impressed upon me, next time you preach, that's what I want you to talk about. So today I have that opportunity. I asked her to sing that song for us. It's actually based on a passage of scripture out of the book of Psalms. It's called Psalm 139. So we're going to be getting there in a few minutes. But before we go uh, to Psalm 139, let's, uh, I want to give you a little, bit of a, a little bit of background information on me. And let's start with a question. A little question. Maybe you can relate to this, I hope. Is there anybody here who ever had something unfair happen to them in their life? <laughs> That's kind of what I thought. Yeah, yeah, sometimes unfair things happen to us. I was thinking back to what was the time in my life that I had something unfair happen to me, and, and the thing I thought about was a time back in college, a little bit of background information on myself. I went to a local college not too far from here called Geneva College. It's in the town of Beaver Falls. Now, if you've ever been to Geneva College, you realize that there's, there's not a whole lot to do on campus. It's a very nice, very lovely little campus, but pretty much the highlight of action on campus is taking a half-mile walk up to Sheets to buy a $4 foot-long hoagie, at least in like early 2000s. It's probably like $27 now, but that's what we would do for fun. But if you wanted to do something a little bit more fun, you had to get off campus. You had to actually get on the turnpike and maybe go up to Cranberry to get some food or to do a little shopping. So one night, my roommate and I, who is actually Keith Kozik, you heard him speak last week. We go way back to the Geneva days and even before that. We've been friends for a long time. One night, Keith and I, we somehow, we pried ourselves away from our books. We just forced ourselves to put down the studying for a little while, even though it almost broke our hearts. And we got in my vehicle and we headed off to Cranberry. Now, when you took a trip to Cranberry, you had to be prepared because there was tolls that you had to pay. It's before the days whenever you didn't have to pay the toll. Now, going to Cranberry, we had to pay a toll. 50 cents to get there, 50 cents to get back. We were poor college students. And so we scrounged around our entire apartment and finally did what any half-intelligent 20-year-olds would never do. We took off for Cranberry with exactly one dollar bill between the two of us. It's all the money we had. One dollar bill. <clears throat> what could go wrong? So we get in the car. We head off to Cranberry. Things go well. We get to the toll booth at the turnpike, and we hand the lady, I hand the lady the dollar bill, and she gives me back two quarters. The turnpike assistant gave me the two quarters. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. It's going to be important. And I threw him in the console. We do whatever we did. We probably got some of the wings that Keith was talking about last week or whatever at the lube. We're come back. We head back towards Beaver Falls, ready to get right back at the books again. And we get to the exit of the turnpike. And somewhere between the exit of the turnpike and the toll booth, I realized we might have a problem. Because I reached down for the quarters and I picked them up, expecting to see two George Washingtons looking back at me. But instead, I saw one George and some kind of deer or moose or caribou that I've never seen before on a quarter because the turnpike assistant had given me a Canadian quarter. Well, I didn't know if this would be a problem, but as I mentioned, these were the only two, this was the only money I had to my name. So I didn't want to make a big deal about it getting up to the booth. So I pull up and I hand the guy the money and I'm like trying to be all cool. And 
it wasn't his first rodeo, and he wasn't having a great day. Because all he did was take the good quarter and put the Canadian quarter right back in my face and say, you still owe me 25 cents. So I'm thinking, man, they gave me this quarter. What am I going to do? So surely any reasonable person would understand and would let me through. So I, I, I have this conversation with this guy, and I'm trying to explain what happened, and I'm getting a little frustrated. Finally, I said, it was you guys who gave it to me. And I'll never forget what he did. He just goes, hmm. And he leans out the booth and taps on the metal door outside the turnpike stall that had a clearly printed sign that said, U.S. currency only. Uh, At this point, I realized it wasn't fair, and I gave up. I surrendered. I looked in my mirror. There was a long line of cars. People were getting angry. This guy wasn't going to change. I accepted that it wasn't fair. I took the little form that you have to fill out when you don't have the proper amount of change. I took the Canadian quarter that they gave to me, and I went back to my, my dorm room, wrote a check for 25 cents plus the fee to the Turnpike Administration, <laughs> and I went on with my life. It wasn't fair, but what was I going to do? Now, I don't tell you this story today because I want you to feel bad for me. You shouldn't. I should have had more money on me. My dad's here. He'll probably remind me that one more time after we're done. I don't want you to feel bad for me, but this is, this is like one of those little inconveniences in life, right? Life's full of these things that we can look back and we can just kind of laugh. I I don't know what the fee was to the turnpike for not having enough money, but I guarantee you this. Whatever it was, it was worth it, because I've laughed about that a bunch of times since then, and I've got my money back, believe me. But that's the way life is. Sometimes things happen to us that are not fair, they're beyond our control, there's really nothing that we can do about it, they impact us negatively, and we just have to kind of laugh it off and move on. It's like when you get a a flat tire in a thunderstorm. What are you going to do except get out and try to change it? It's like when you place an order at a drive-thru and you drive a mile down the road and you reach inside for your fries and there's no fries because they forgot to give them to you. It's like whenever you've got this problem and you're on customer service and you've been waiting for like 15, 20 minutes and all you hear is the dial tone because you got disconnected. Sometimes those things happen to us in life. And they can be annoying and they can be frustrating, but really, they're not a big deal. In fact, what's maybe even more annoying than sometimes those little inconveniences is when people try to make them out like they're a bigger deal than they really are. When people react to them like they're life-altering tragedies. And I'll, I'll confess, sometimes I'm that guy, right? And when I do that, my wife is kind enough to politely uh, remind me, honey, that's a first world problem you're having there. But not all the problems that we have in life are little, are they? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because not everything that we're dealing with is a, they put a pickle on my Big Mac and now I have to pull it off kind of a problem. You know, I know that there's times in life when we're up against things that are beyond our control, that are impacting us negatively, but we can't just shrug it off. We can't just have a good laugh tell a friend a funny story, and move on. Actually, there's times in our lives when we're up against things that you wish that there was something that you could do. If there was only anything that you could do, but yet you come to the realization that there's nothing you can do. Some of you have brought those situations in here with you this morning. 
Some of you have walked in here this morning and everything that you have tried to do hasn't worked and you have no idea what you can do next. Some of you here today, you feel like you're at a complete dead end. You're out of options and you don't have anywhere to turn. Maybe it's a person in your life that you care about and they're making destructive choices. And the only thing you can do is just stand back and watch. Maybe you or another person in your life that's close to you has received bad news from a doctor and you know that because of that news, life's never going to be the same again. Maybe someone you were close to broke your trust and you're just reeling from it and you don't know where to turn. Maybe you're having a conflict or relational problem at work or at home. Or maybe you lost a relationship and nothing you've tried has helped you get it back. Maybe you're having a financial or a career situation and you just feel like you have nowhere to go and there's nothing you can do. Whether you came in here with that situation today or maybe you've had that situation in the past, at some point in your life, now, then, or in the future, you will face a problem, a challenge, a difficulty, or a trial that if there were anything that you could do, you would do it but it seems like there's nothing you can do. And that's the question I want to talk about this morning. What do you do? What do you do when it seems like there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you tried everything you can think of? What do you do when you feel like there's no options? What do you do when you arrive at the realization that it seems like there's nothing you can do? If we want to discover what we can do in this type of situation, probably the best place to look is at a person who many times in his life experienced situations where he was up against huge problems and felt like there was nothing he could do. This morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you have your Bible, please turn there with me. If you have a smartphone, we have guest Wi-Fi, or you might grab a Bible in your pew, or you can just look up on the screen the words will be up there. And when you arrive at Psalm 139, you'll see this little inscription. It says this, for the director of music of David, a psalm. Before we head into the passage itself, this little inscription gives us some details that are helpful in understanding the passage. First, the words of David means that this psalm was written by David. Now this is the David that we know of David and Goliath fame, who went on to become King David. And often when we think of David, we think of a brave young man who is slaying giants with just a slingshot, who went on to become a mighty king, leading warriors into battle and having great victories. But when you read a little bit more in scripture about David, we also find out that David's life wasn't all wins and victories. David in his life experienced some very intense, I don't know what I can do because it seems like there's nothing I can do kind of moments. You see, after David had his famous victory over the giant Goliath, he became very popular. And the standing king at that point, King Saul, became jealous of David's popularity. So he made the decision that the best approach would be to find David and have him killed. 
So for about eight years in between the time when he killed Goliath and when he eventually became the king of Israel, David had to flee from Saul, living in caves, living in foreign countries to escape this man who wanted to have him killed. David eventually became the king, but life wasn't perfect after that. See, David had a son named Absalom who grew up and realized, hey, I want to be king, not someday, but now. So Absalom also tried to have David killed, and David once again went on the run. See, David experienced some intense difficulties, some intense trials in his life. The second thing about this passage is this. It says, for the director of music. What that tells us is that this psalm is not just a private conversation between David and God, but for the director of music literally means that the intention was for these words to be taken and placed to music so that they could be sung in worship to God. David wasn't just intending to communicate what he felt and what he did. He was intending to help God's people approach God in worship to communicate what they might feel sometimes and what they could do. So with that context, let's take a look at Psalm 139. And I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to look at the first 18 verses all at one time. Try your best to follow along on the screen. If you, if you wander a little bit in your brain, catch up. You're coming, this is coming from somebody who has a hard time paying attention sometimes. So follow along with me. And we're going to look at why, what David had to say here. He starts out in verse 1 and says, Oh Lord, you have searched me. And you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, or if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for as the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Were you able to capture the beauty of what he wrote there? I mean, this is just an amazing testimony to what God means for our lives. David's saying here that God knows us, God is with us, God has made us. I mean, there's no way you couldn't sing this psalm in church. This is an amazing passage of worship. It's kind of almost like too happy, right? It's like Peter Pan in Neverland having all happy thoughts. It's like, what could go wrong here? 
And this is the interesting thing about Scripture because if, you know, if I was the writer or if I was just making this up, this would be a great place to stop. But sometimes I think we know Scripture's true because David, he didn't stop. Instead, he carried on into verse 19. And all of a sudden, the beautiful, hopeful, comforting picture of God takes a bit of an unexpected twist. Look at David's tone as we continue on in verse 19. He says this, If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries, God, they misuse your name. Then he says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor? Or in other words, they disgust me, those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Holy cow. I mean, what happened between verse 18 and 19? He was all happy, and then all of a sudden, he's like flipping out. See, this is what I love for, about Scripture. When you read it, when you actually get in and read it, you'll realize that there are passages like this where David, he just gets so real, and he gets raw, and he gets honest. You see, as much as we would like to have verse 18 endings, we realize that life has Psalm 139 problems and feelings. The Bible doesn't say specifically what situation David was up against, but we know that it was in causing him some intense emotion. It certainly seems like there was someone or someones who were causing him to feel anger and pain and frustration. And David gets before God and listen to what he says. He says, God, I have a plan on how to solve this problem. I thought I was out of options, but I came up with a good one. Here's what we're going to do, God. You're all powerful. You can make it happen. Verse 19, he says, if only you would slay them. God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take them out. Kill them all. Why? Because verse 22 says, I, I stink and hate them. I hate them. I never thought I would read that in the Bible. He doesn't say, make them, God, please just help them to be nicer people. God, I just pray that they'll get a new job and maybe move away. God, I pray that you'll just change them. Maybe they'll have an ice cream cone and feel better about themselves and be nice to me. He says, kill them. Now, I don't know if you're a Bible person. Maybe you studied the Bible for a while or maybe you're new to the Bible. But many have heard about this passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, love your enemies, not kill them and hate them. So does the Bible contradict itself? I mean, does it surprise anybody but me to read about a man that the Bible refers to in David as a man after God's own heart? And yet here he is before God saying, God, please take them out. That'll fix it all. See, what we have to realize here is that David in this passage, he's not writing a theological dissertation. He's not composing a doctrinal statement on all the degrees and aspects of love. He is in the middle of a, I don't know what I can do, but it feels like there's nothing I can do kind of moment. And he expresses his real feelings to God. And I don't know what situation you're facing, 
But what comes to mind whenever you read David's words here? What comes to your mind in your life when you hear his emotion and say, you know what, I kind of feel this way about that problem. Did you know that you don't have to be fake with God? You don't have to go before him and have some kind of wordy prayer. We already read earlier that God knows your thoughts before they're even composed in your head. You can't fake it. So David just gets real and honest, and you can be that honest with God. And what David may have realized, and what we need to realize, is that God, in the midst of his, in the midst of his frustration, God answers his question about what can you do when it seems like there's nothing you can do with the other words that he gave him in Psalm 139. If we look back again, we're not going to read the whole passage again, but if you look back at verses 1 through 18, there's some themes that come out. But the central focus there that David is doing as he talks about, as he looks at these themes is he's holding on to what he knows is true about God. He's holding on. He's facing something that makes him want to let go, makes him want to give up, but he holds on to what he knows is true about God. David says, God, you know me. God, you're with me. God, you designed me. And when you're in those, I don't know what I can do because it seems like there's nothing I can do kind of moments, you've got to hold on to what you know is true about God. Let me give you an example from my life. Thursday night, went to uh, the pirate game with some people from here from CAC, and we were sitting up in the seats, and we're watching the game, and you know how in between innings, they put people up on the Jumbotron. So we're watching the Jumbotron, and I saw a familiar face up on the Jumbotron. I was really thankful it wasn't mine. It was actually uh, this kid that I had when I was a youth pastor. My first five or six years of ministry, I was a youth pastor, and it was a, a kid that I had as a student back then, and he's at the Pirate Game. So I still had his cell phone number, and I texted him. I said, hey, I just saw you on the screen. Hey, where are you sitting? So we, we texted a little bit, and I wound up going down and watching a couple innings of the game with him. And we're sitting there. It was just awesome to hear about his life. I mean, he's, he's graduated from college. He's now in grad school uh, studying to enter into the medical profession doing really well. He married a beautiful, great young lady. They're part of a church in Pittsburgh, and it's just, it was wonderful to sit there and hear that he's made some great choices in his life. And as we're sitting there and we're we're having this conversation, it kind of took a little bit more serious turn than I expected it to. And he said to me, you know, I've never told you this, but I wanted to tell you, when I was a senior in high school, or junior or senior in high school, I started hanging out with some people and I got into a popular crowd, and they were doing some things that I just knew weren't good for my life. But I wanted to fit in, and I just really struggled with what to do. He said, I really felt like at that point in my life, I could have gone either way. But because you were there for me, I felt like I made good choices, and I steered clear of going down the wrong path. And, and it was striking to hear that I had been able to make a difference in this person's life and, and that God had used me. But what impacted me even more than that comment was, and, and, and he didn't know this, but that period that he was talking about was one of the most difficult times in my ministry so far. It was a tough time, and I had many, I just don't know what I can do, moments with God. For those of you who have served or volunteered, either as staff or, uh, or as volunteers in ministry, you know that that's, it's not easy. You know, there's seasons in ministry whenever you're doing what you know God wants you to do, but you're not seeing the fruit from it, and it can be hard. So I was dealing with some of that. The church I was serving in was going through some really, really difficult, turbulent times. 
And it was weighing on me. And I wanted to let go. I mean, I was like battling, hey, God, not just do you want to have me in youth ministry. It was, God, what am I doing in ministry? Why am I doing this? And I was just holding on. And when I look back and I thought about what was at that point in my life that got me through that, it was this. It's because I held on to what I knew was true about God when everything else told me to let go and run. I held on to the fact that I knew he called me to be a pastor. It was very crystal clear to me. And I knew that not only did he call me into ministry, he called me to be the youth pastor at that church for that time. And I held on to that and didn't let go. And whatever you're facing this morning, you need to know that you got to hold on. You may want to let go. you got to hold on to what you know is true about God. What does David say is true? Verse 1 of Psalm 139. Lord, you search me and you know me. You may feel like no one cares. You may feel like no one knows who you are. You may feel like if you disappeared tomorrow, no one would notice. But God knows you. God knows you. John, God knows you. Sue, God knows you. Grant, God knows you. He knows you. He doesn't just know of you. He doesn't just know your name. He knows you inside and out. Doesn't it blow your mind that the God of the universe cares enough about you to know you? Furthermore, David says in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God doesn't just know you, he's with you. He's not with you in that kind of way that he's keeping score of when you do something good and and, and marking it bad when you do something wrong. He's with you to help you. Keith brought it out so well last week when he talked about the fact that we have a shepherd in Jesus. And that our shepherd goes with us as sheep to protect us. And when a trial comes, the shepherd doesn't run away. But the shepherd says, you know what? I'm stepping in between you and the problem. God is with you. You may feel alone and deserted. But David is saying, God has not left your side. Finally, in verse 14, he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. If you skip down to verse 16, he says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows you, he's with you, and he has designed you with a plan and purpose in mind. He says, All your days are known to God. He designed you perfectly for what he's called you to do. You may feel unimportant. You may feel like you have no worth. You may feel like there's no point in life. The Bible says God made you, each one of you, each one of us, for a purpose. He knows how many days you have. And if you have another day, it's because he has something for you. If you woke up this morning and God gave you breath, and he got you here to this building, it's because he is not done with you yet. You might be ready to give up on yourself, but I assure you, God is not ready to give up on you. And you need to cling, we need to cling to the truth about what God really says about us. He knows us, he's with us, he's designed us with a purpose. And that's what David is doing here in Psalm 139. In the midst of 
I don't know what to do, God. I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. He says, I'm going to cling to you. But he doesn't stop there. If you look at verse 23, we'll wrap up here. He says this. This is the most challenging part. See, it's nice to think thoughts about how God knows us and loves us and is with us. That's helpful and it's true. But he doesn't want us to stop there. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, you got to look inside yourself to see what God's trying to do in you. I want you to think about it this way. I brought with me a mirror this morning. If you think of yourself kind of as a mirror, and in verses 19 through 22, David is kind of doing what my natural response is when I'm up against those trying times, or when I'm up against those problems that I don't know what to do. I take what I know is true, and I take my mirror, and I want to point it at the problem or point it at the person and say, hey, look, you need to change. Can't you see what's here? Can't you see what's wrong? Can't you see what needs to be different? If you would just look, I'll tell you. And David's taking verses 19 through 22 and saying, these are all the problems out here, out there. They need to look in the mirror and make a change. But the reality of this is that when we do this with our life, we can't change what's in the mirror because it's not us. And I can jump up here and jump up and down. I can dance. I can spin around and do all kinds of crazy stuff and just wear myself out until I'm tired and falling on the floor. But nothing I can do can change the reflection in the mirror when I hold it this way because that's outside of my control. And some of us have spent our lives doing that. We spent our lives wearing ourselves out trying to change what the reflection in the mirror is. But look at what David says. He says, search me. Test me. See if there's any offensive way in me. See, what he's saying is this. He's saying, you need to take that mirror and you need to flip it around. And quit focusing on what's out there. Step in front of the mirror yourself. Have a conversation between you and God about not what you see in the mirror out there, but what you see in the mirror in here. And this morning, my challenge to you is to flip that mirror and take a step in front of it and get real honest about what you see. Maybe if you're really honest and you flip the mirror and you step in front of it, you'll see your own contribution to the problem that's driving you crazy. Maybe you'll see some sin in your life that you need to confess and repent of. In fact, maybe you'll see a phone call you need to make, a visit you need to make, a conversation that you need to have to apologize. Because here all along, you thought that problem was out there, but when you take an honest look between you and God, a lot of it's in here. Or maybe you won't see sin, but maybe you'll see an attitude change, a perspective adjustment. Maybe you need to refocus. Maybe you need to make some hard decisions in your life. Or maybe you'll see in the mirror a, God, a lesson God's trying to teach you. 
Because all this time you've been focusing on what needs to change out there, but God's really saying, hey, look, I need to use this situation to change what's in here. I need to teach you something. So this morning I close by asking two simple questions. What, do, what situation did you carry in the building with you this morning? What are you facing? I could give you all kinds of examples, trying to guess what kinds of problems people have, and I would probably miss most of the things that people are trying to carry. Because in a room this size, I know that there's some heavy burdens. What are you facing? What do you feel like you're up against that you don't know what to do because it seems like there's nothing you can do? The second thing I want to ask you is this. In light of what we read in Psalm 139 this morning, what do you need to do? What can you do? Some need to hold on. You needed to to be reminded about what's true. God knows you. He's with you. He created you for a purpose. Don't let go of that. Even though everything inside of you might be saying to give up or to quit, to walk away, don't let go of that. That's not God. God's saying, I still have more for you. Maybe you need to flip that mirror in your life. You take your eyes off the problems outside of you and focus on getting in front of the mirror with God and saying, what in my life, God, do you want to change? How do you want to make my reflection in that mirror look more like you and less like me? Let me close with a prayer. God, we come before you, Lord. We pray that you'll take these words from Scripture and and the message that David communicated and speak to our hearts. God, I thank you so much for David's honesty, that he wasn't a pretender, that he, he just was honest and real with you about how he felt. God, may we be real with you. Not so much so that we can express and just have these feelings, God, but so that you can work in our lives and change us into the people that you want us to be. God, I pray that you'll encourage those who need to know the truth, that need to cling to what you really say about them. Give them strength and encouragement. Pray that you help others, God, who need to flip the mirror and take an honest look. God, help us to cut the pretense. Help us to cut the pretending. Let us just get real before you. God, I pray that you'll continually shape the people of this church transform us into the likeness of Jesus so that when we leave this building, when we go out into our jobs, into our neighborhoods, into the places of business, that people see people from Community Alliance Church and they think, man, if that's what Jesus looks like, I want that. God, use us as we leave. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.